0: Warning! 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 The following program contains spoilers. They're here. I guess everyone's entitled one good scare. Huh?
1: Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. <laughs>
0: They're coming for you, Barbara. Hey, what's up everybody? Welcome to Midwest Movie Maniacs. I'm Damian D. And I'm not Ricky Glore. What the fuck, Mark?
1: Seriously? You're fucking trying to replace me? You freaking schedule an interview during a time
0: that I cannot be Dude. It, I can't I, I'm not available. And Dude. you freaking you go and you try and you recruit him? Dude. Seriously? You gotta you gotta fucking be available, man. You know what, I am... Nah, you gotta fucking be here, man. Can't fucking be here if you schedule... your Mark, all right, look, look. listen. You don't... This doesn't pay the fucking bills. I I got a Uh, nine to five. Look, I do what I gotta do, man. Ooh. Oh, you want this shit to work? Wow, motherfucker.
1: Oh, let's get the comedian. Let's get the guy with all the followers. What
0: the fuck? Probably not even from the Midwest. This is Midwest movie man. We are experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by.
1: We are experiencing technical difficulties.
0: Please stand... Viewing Hereditary. Um, and this should be an interesting one because we have conflicting opinions. I personally do not like this movie. Because you're a fucking idiot. And the moron on the other end thinks it's great.
1: Fucking moron? Why? Because I like a movie because it actually has some intelligence to it. It's not just fucking chop, chop, slash, slash. Those are all
0: fine and good, but this actually has some depth, some substance, some fucking meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Intelligence? Sure. It's fucking, It's a fucking brilliant movie. It's extremely well done. It's extremely well acted. I don't know what you didn't like. Sure, I'll give you that. The acting was great. But overall, the story was very convoluted. Uh, I mean, seriously, you shouldn't have to watch a movie more than once to realize what the hell's going on. And there was a lot of shit that I didn't catch the first time I had to go back and watch it and go, oh, yeah, okay, now I guess it kind of makes sense.
1: Well, maybe you shouldn't be pulling your pudding
0: while you're watching the freaking... Watching the movie, you should concentrate on it completely. Or maybe maybe I shouldn't be uh, distracted by Tony Collette pulling stupid faces the whole fucking time.
1: Tony Collette was brilliant in this movie. I don't know what you're talking about pulling stupid faces. All right, if you say so. Let's just let's go. Come on. Yeah, yeah. yeah let's let's, let's talk about what you didn't like and what I loved, and let's let's do this.
0: Sounds like or a plan. Let's hurt your feelings? Nope. I'm ready to go. Well, then let's go. All right. The movie opens with an obituary It basically says that uh, Ellen Lee or Lay passed away at the age of 78 and she was at her daughter Annie's house. Um, But then we do get like a pretty cool opening where uh, we see the treehouse and then the camera pans in and we see a uh, like a miniature house and it zooms into one of the rooms and then it cuts to the actual room where we see the father coming in. And I thought that was a kind of cool way to open the movie yeah
1: i thought it was absolutely uh very well done first uh you didn't
0: necessarily see the miniature thing happening and so it just kind of gave you a little whoop yeah it was a nice it was a nice way to kick it off um and then we see steve the father played by gabriel Byrne. uh he comes in to wake up his son peter who's played by alex wolf um he hands him a suit And asks if his sister slept in the bedroom. And um, at this point, I assumed correctly that they were preparing to go to a funeral. Of course, Peter doesn't know where his sister slept because he's not her keeper. Then Steve goes out and finds Charlie, the sister, who was played by Millie Shapiro, uh, sleeping in the treehouse that we saw at the very beginning. I tell you what, from the very
1: beginning, I looked at this kid. I'm like, this kid's just got like a weird vibe about it. Just a a unique look and... Just uh, strange. I'm like, this, this is going to be that kid, that weird-ass kid through the whole fucking movie was my first thoughts.
0: Yeah, she definitely had, like, a strange vibe. Like, her actions were strange. When he, when he wakes her up, she acts really almost suspicious, like, the way she jumps up. Like, I don't know, she just gave off vibes that I was like, yeah, this kid's not, she's not right. But then I also kind of got the vibe that Charlie may have, may have had, like, some sort of mental disability. I read online, which this really isn't in there, but when, when he wakes her up, she has a box and she puts the lid on the box real quick. And apparently the box was full of like small animal heads, but they didn't really show the box. So I guess the this was what the director said, but then I guess maybe he decided not to include that, which would have just made the whole thing even weirder to me if we would have just seen random animal heads in a box this early in the movie. Yeah, I feel like you're just kind of given. Given too much
1: away in the, in the beginning, it's, it's best to let you know everything kind of unfold a little bit. Yeah, maybe for continuity's sake, the director just felt that it did not help the story to show, it, show those animal heads at that point.
0: Right, and then eventually they do make their way to the funeral, and then we see Annie giving a eulogy for her mother. And then through the course of the eulogy, she kind of said, you know, her and her mom weren't really that close. And I don't know, I got the kind of, I got the vibe that her and her mom didn't really get along very well. And her her mom was kind of distant and kind of pulled herself away from the family.
1: Well, you can tell just by the eulogy that she's given. She's just got a really cold vibe about her. I know, you know, myself, you, a majority of people I know, if you're giving a eulogy for your parent, you're going to be an emotional wreck. You know, I mean, you're at least going to be choking back some tears. There's some people that are going to break down sobbing. There's some people... They're going to cry a little bit and be able to hold themselves together. But she really didn't show any kind of emotion whatsoever. And that was the first indication to me that they did not have a close relationship, Annie and uh, and uh Alan.
0: Right. And then uh during this scene, we see Charlie looking in the casket and she notices that her grandmother is wearing a necklace with a very odd symbol on it, which this symbol will be seen multiple times throughout the movie. But at this point, we really don't know what it means. I thought it was kind of weird because it wasn't like, Attractive. It was kind of a weird looking thing that I was like, why would anybody even wear a necklace with that shit on it? But then later we understand why she was wearing it. But also during this scene, Charlie looks up and there's like a really creepy fucking dude standing at the end of the casket, just smiling at her. And that guy was like, I don't know, he was giving off super creeper vibes. During this scene is the first time that we hear the tongue click sounds, not when we're looking at Charlie, but during the funeral. It's actually, uh, the camera's on, I believe it's on Steve and Peter the first time, and we hear the sound, and uh, at this point, we're like, the fuck is that noise? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what Charlie's
1: condition is, but yeah, that becomes her, uh, basically her signature, is that that clicking noise. I don't know if possibly it has something to do with her condition, if it's like a coping mechanism, a, a nervous habit, exactly you know, what the reasoning is for it. But yeah, it's something that she continues to repeat throughout the movie. And I'll be honest with you, if it was me and that, and it was my sister or child or whatever, it'd probably drive me fucking nuts within like the first five minutes.
0: Yeah, it would have definitely drove me crazy. And I do have a theory about that, but I'm going to hold on to that until a little bit later, because in order for me to explain my theory, I would have to jump to the end of the movie. So we'll leave that one, put a pin in it. We'll come back to it a little bit later. Um, But then also during the funeral, we see a scene where Charlie is eating a candy bar and uh, both of her parents separately approach her and frantically ask, does it have nuts in it? So obviously we're we're, you know, clued in that she must have a nut allergy. And then uh, mom says that they didn't have the EpiPen. And uh, my first thought there was, if you're so concerned about her eating nuts, wouldn't you have the EpiPen all the fucking time?
1: Yeah, I mean, you would think, especially if your child is, you know, that important to you, which is established later exactly how much Charlie is loved, that you would do everything in your power to protect your child and have that Epi- EpiPen with you in every, in every scenario. So,
0: right. And the, the uh, lack of an EpiPen comes into play again a little bit later. And it's just like these are very irresponsible people, or maybe it's intentional. Then they go home. And then there was a scene that kind of adds to our theory about her and the mother not being very close when she asks her husband if she should be sad. And Steve's response is, you should be whatever, whatever you are. Right. If you're not sad, then you shouldn't be sad. Right. You,
1: normally people don't dredge up emotions and pretend to feel something that they don't unless it's for dramatic purposes or to put on a show for somebody right yeah so the fact that she, apparently she does not feel a whole lot for her mother uh
0: is not is not lost so right and then uh steve does go and check on peter and asks peter if he's sad and peter is like basically says he doesn't really care one way or the other so it would appear then that peter also wasn't very close to his grandmother correct which later we'll understand why but we do get a scene where annie is talking to charlie and Charlie mentions that grandma wanted me to be a boy. And um, I think in the same scene is, I believe is when Charlie says, who's gonna take care of me? And the, the, Annie says, I will. And then she says, no, when you're dead. Right, and at that point, Annie says, it's either gonna be
1: dad or Peter. Um, but you can see like with the questions that she's asking, or whatever I feel like to see just playing it, that Charlie is the one having the hardest time with grandma's death. Right. Just like any, any young child, death is going to create a lot of a lot of questions and i feel like this is this is one of the things that was very well done who is going to take care of me when when this happens and i think charlie's wise enough to know that children almost always outlive their parents right and that's another thing that leans towards the fact that maybe charlie does have some kind of disability that i was never really made a parent you know circling back to that but the fact that she's asking who's going to take care of me after you die you know, heaven forbid, if my, if my, I were to lose my mother tomorrow, it's like, I would be grief stricken. I would be upset, but I'm not going to ask who's going to take care of me because I'm a grown ass man. I'm going to take care of, I'm going to take care of myself, you know, and etc. cetera. The fact that Charlie is worried about that either leads us to believe that she believes Annie's going to die before she's grown, or she's not going to have
0: the ability to take care of herself once she's grown. Right, and then during during this scene was also when Annie had mentioned something like, you were such a good baby, you never cried ever, or not once, or something like that. Right, she said she
1: never, she never cried, not even when she was born.
0: Right, which, I mean, how do you as a parent not find it odd that the baby never cried, that your child, I mean, even into her, I think at one point we find out she's 13. So in 13 years time, she's never cried once, and you didn't think that was a little bit strange? Right, and then... Annie asked her she said did you feel like crying today
1: and maybe that would be some type of release and Charlie had no response whatsoever to that
0: so right so then um uh oh then uh we see the Andy goes. right and he goes and finds a box labeled mom's things and she's kind of just digging through it and she finds a book about spiritualism and um, inside the book she finds a note which um I did write it what it says uh, the note says my darling, dear, beautiful Annie, forgive me all the things I could not tell you. Please don't hate me and try not to despair your losses. You will see in the end that they were worth it. Our sacrifice will pale next to the rewards. Love, Mommy. And the reason why I found this strange was because at this point, there really haven't been any losses other than the loss of her mother. And as we later learn, was it her brother? Yeah, Charles, yeah, her brother. Charles was her brother who who committed suicide years ago or so that I thought it was kind of strange that her mom had left her a note almost like she could see what was going to happen. Like she knew what was going to happen.
1: Yeah. And I, I, the other thing that I found was interesting was she signed it. Love mommy. Yes. At what point was this note written? Because we've already established that they were not close at the later in life. And that there was a lot of problems between them, which we'll they'll delve into, you know, deeper later, but yeah, love mommy. was just an interesting signature too, which To me, knowing now what happens later in the movie and how this note all ties in, I think it makes it even more creepy that it's signed to love mommy.
0: Right, and then speaking of mommy, as Annie is walking out of the room, she turns the light off and she looks back into the room and in the dark shadows of the corner, she sees her mother standing there. And then, uh, of course, she turns the light back on immediately and she's not there. So, I mean, did she imagine it? Was it a ghost? Who knows? Actually, take it back to when she was talking to Charlie. She had mentioned that Grandma always wanted to feed her. And then we get a scene where she's looking at one of her miniatures and she spins it around. And in the miniature, we see Annie breastfeeding Charlie and the grandmother is standing next to her with her breast exposed like she wants to breastfeed Charlie, which was disturbing. To say the least. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't know if she ever actually attempted it but it was clear that she was wanted to breastfeed her and then um we move along to we see uh, charlie in the class and um a bird just splats right into the window and of course the the kids all go crazy you know there's a little blood on the window and everybody's freaking out and then um we see, see go ahead i was just gonna say uh i don't know if you skimmed over this if you
1: didn't as being important but you see charlie sitting there and looking at the teacher's desk and observing a
0: pair of scissors sitting there on the desk right after the bird splat charlie looks up at the teacher's desk and sees the scissors um then we see charlie she's now outside and she's looking at the dead bird that splatted against the window and then we see her pull out the scissors she was looking at and she cuts the bird's head clean off because that's normal
1: yeah that's a, that's completely normal and you people fucking freak out when your kid cuts their own hair. <laughs> this kid's running around cutting off animal heads with scissors and shit. And you're worried. You're worried about them. You're worried about little
0: Susie and little Bobby cutting their freaking bangs. Right, and then she and then she puts the head in her pocket because that's also a normal thing to do. I'll just keep that here for later. Yeah, well, later we'll, we we do see what she does with it, which is also weird. But we'll get there. Uh, but then we'll also head th- we'll head in that direction eventually. <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> and then uh, at this point she turns around and there's just a random woman across the street smiling and waving at her which there's a lot of creepy people that are just being creepy in this movie Charlie being one of them yes 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 and then uh steve gets a call from the cemetery uh, we gather, or at least I gathered from listening to his end of the conversation that somebody desecrated Ellen's grave, the grandmother, the mother, the old lady who died. Correct. But they don't really give a lot of details. It's kind of a, it's mentioned and then it comes back later. Right. And then
1: Annie asks him what the call was about. He just tells her was billing because of course he's not going to uh, upset his wife by telling him, telling her that her mother's grave has been desecrated.
0: Right. And then Annie tells him she's going to the movies and heads out and uh, doesn't actually go to the movie. Instead, we see her going to a support group for people that have lost somebody. Right. They, yeah, you can see a sign as, as it pans in onto the group. That Yeah, it's a, it's a support
1: group for people who've lost loved ones.
0: Right, and she's just kind of listening in as people talk. She doesn't really seem to uh, want to talk. Uh, but Then she eventually opens up, and uh, at this point, we find out that her mother had dementia, uh, that her father had died when she was a baby, and that he starved himself to death because he suffered from depression.
1: Side note, I just wanted to jump in real quick. She said that her mother had dementia, but another thing that she had said that she suffered from DID, and I was not exactly sure what that was, so I looked it up, and what DID is, is a dissociative identity disorder, which basically means her mother had multiple personalities. Right. So.
0: And then also, uh, she mentions that her brother had committed suicide in his mother's bedroom by hanging himself. And he left a note that basically blamed the mother because he said she was trying to put people inside him. And then uh, we find out what Charlie wanted the head for because we see that she makes these creepy little doll type things out of what looks like just random garbage. And uh, there's a scene where she's making one and she puts the severed bird's head on top of this little doll yeah that's normal not yeah right and then at this point we get the first glimpse of the weird like bluish light that appears throughout the movie it kind of wraps around the room i just
1: realized that we missed a very pertinent part um which has a direct tie-in later back to the the counseling scene uh one thing that annie is talking about is she said that that her mother was um Their relationship was on again, off again, and her mother was very manipulative. And Steve, her husband, ended up enforcing a non-contact rule. And that stayed in effect until she was pregnant with Charlie. And I guess a lot of that was out
0: of guilt because she didn't let anywhere near her when she was pregnant with Peter. Right. And I I believe um, that would mean the grandmother had nothing to do with Peter all the way up until Charlie was born.
1: Right. And then she said that once Charlie was born and she was allowed to be around Charlie, she immediately
0: stabbed her hooks into Charlie. which. I mean, not literally, but figuratively, I would say she definitely stabbed her hooks into Charlie. Right. And Annie
1: says she's got she deals with a lot of guilt and she blames her. She feels blamed, but she's not exactly sure what for.
0: Right. So then uh, we get back to the blue light. It's kind of a weird effect because it kind of travels around the whole room kind of goes around Charlie and then goes to the window. And it's almost like it hypnotizes her because she just stands and walks over and kind of stares out the window. And then um, we see her outside walking towards, I guess, the forest, the woods, a wooded area. And then uh, at this point, Peter tells his mom that he wants to go to a school barbecue and Annie tells him that he has to take Charlie if Charlie wants to go.
1: I note: uh, Peter had received a text earlier from one of his friends inviting him to a huge party at somebody's house. And he said, bring your dick. So, yeah, yeah
0: they're, uh, unless they're barbe- barbecue and weenies, uh, it's not a barbecue. So. <laughs> right. Which, uh, which, of course, he's not going to tell his mother that he was invited to a huge party. So he says. Uh, oh, and that he was supposed to bring his dick. Right. That would be an awkward conversation to
1: have with your mother. <laughs> Unless it's, you live in Alabama. Exactly. No offense to any of our listeners who happen to live in Alabama. It's just, a, it's just a joke.
0: Right. I mean, if you do, you do you or your sibling or whatever it is you do there. Or your parent or whatever. Sure. Sick I mean, shit. whatever floats your gravy boat. So uh, we see Charlie walking and she sees what. Uh, what I saw was just an old lady surrounded by fire. But what I read online was that the old lady was actually her grandmother. I didn't pick that up, but. Yeah, I was
1: watching the 4K version and I still didn't get a good enough look to establish that that was the mother, so.
0: Right, I just saw an old lady because I believe the whole time her back is just to the camera. We never see her face. Correct. I don't know, but what I read was that it's supposed to be Ellen, the grandmother. So we'll go with that. It doesn't really matter either way. There's an old lady sitting in the woods with fire around her. And then of course, Annie, is looking for Charlie because she wants to tell her to, you know, hey, do you want to go to this barbecue? Though she uh, doesn't actually say, hey, do you want to go to the barbecue? She pretty much says, you are going to this barbecue. I think mom
1: wanted to have all the kids out of the house so her dad could have a little... (laughs) So she's like, oh, you're going.
0: You're going with your brother. Your dad and I are going to Netflix and chill. Sure. It could be. So uh, eventually, Charlie reluctantly agrees to go to the party, and she sends him off. Go go, have fun at the party, kids. As they're driving
1: down the road, you can see Peter is uh, Peter's driving, and Charlie's in the back seat doing her signature click, 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 and Peter looks extremely annoyed, probably from the clicking and the fact that he's going to this party, him and his dick, and he's got to drag along his little sister.
0: Right. And also, while they're driving, we get a shot where we see a telephone pole and that weird symbol from grandma's necklace is scratched into the telephone pole. At this point, we still don't know what that symbol means, but it obviously must mean something because it's, once again, it shows its ugly face. And so uh, they arrive at the party and everybody's having a great time. Peter sees a girl from his class and he's trying to talk to her and she doesn't really seem too interested Till he tells her he's got weed and they run off to smoke weed together. Charlie doesn't want to be left alone, but Peter tells her, you know, hey, look, they've got cake. Go get some cake. You'll be fine. Side note, there's a scene right before this where we see a girl chopping the shit out of some nuts with a knife, and um, there's speculation that this same knife was used to cut the cake, uh, which I think could very well be the case, Um, or the cake had nuts in it. I don't know. I didn't see nuts, but some people say you can clearly see the nuts in the cake. But either way, Charlie eats the cake and inevitably has a reaction because, as we established earlier, she has an allergy and she starts kind of, it's not an immediate thing, but you can immediately tell something is wrong with her. This would be a time when the EpiPen would be great. But oh, guess what? Nobody brought the EpiPen. Surprise. The fuck? They they got it in for this kid or something. No EpiPen ever. Right. That's why I said it's almost like they wanted something to happen to her. Uh, So she finds Peter in the room with a bunch of kids smoking weed. You can definitely hear her breathing is very like raspy and labored and she's struggling to breathe. And uh, she tells him that she feels like her throat is getting bigger, which is kind of a weird way to say my throat's swelling up. But I mean, I got it. I got what she was trying to say. Of course, being the good brother that he is, he knows immediately he's got to get his sister to a hospital. So he picks her up and uh, they rush out and jump in the car. And he's hauling ass to the hospital and he's telling her, you know, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. We're gonna, we're almost at the hospital, you know, just hang in there. And she's so desperate for air that she rolls the window down and sticks her head out. And you know, she's just gasping and gasping. Oh, lo and behold, there's a deer dead in the middle of the road. Peter swerves to miss the deer and Charlie's head cut clean off by the telephone pole that we saw earlier and my jaw about hit the friggin' floor. I did not see this coming.
1: I did see, you know, that probably something was going to happen during the swerve, but the whole premise that her head was going to smack into the telephone pole and knock her head off just completely came out of left field for me. And yeah, that was probably to me the first really holy shit moment of this movie.
0: Yeah. I definitely didn't expect her to die that early. I really thought she was going to be there till the end. Right.
1: Yeah, it's like one of those things where I'm sitting there watching it and I'm thinking, okay, this kid is a major part of this movie. And then next thing you know, bam! I haven't been so derailed from watching a beheading of what I thought was going to be a main character since the, pi- the first episode of Game of Thrones when Ned Stark lost his head. Sorry, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched it yet, too fucking bad.
0: I, I haven't. I haven't seen a single episode of that show. Thanks for ruining it for me.
1: You're welcome. Thanks
0: for fucking trying to recruit somebody else
1: for our podcast. Anyway, it's
0: not too late, bitch. It can still happen. Yeah, go watch fucking Game of Thrones and shut up. I don't want to. But anyway, of course, Peter is now freaked out. He's completely stopped the car. He's just sitting there, obviously going through all kinds of emotions. Um, Then we see him. He just takes his foot off the brake and doesn't even apply gas. The car just begins rolling. And I assumed he just rolled all the way home you know, just in gear rolling at very slow rate of speed. I think this is a combination of a couple of things. I think one
1: of them is the fact that Peter is just an absolute shock right now. It's sinking in that he just killed his sister, essentially, even though it was not intentional. And the fact that, I mean, he was smoking weed. You know, Peter was extremely friggin was, was high at the point that this 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 happened. And so I think he was kind of sobering up, coming up off the high. And I think it was a combination of things as far as the rolling of the car. But I'm sure it took him quite a while to get home.
0: Yeah, we, we don't get an exact timeline because we just cut to him pulling into the driveway. But then uh, he just goes in the house, just walks in, walks upstairs, goes and lays down in bed, doesn't say anything. Just lays down. Uh, I really didn't expect him to sleep, and I don't think he did because the next time we see him, it's morning and his eyes are still wide open. Yeah. And uh, here, not to cut you off, but just to backtrack a little bit, that was
1: one of those moments where, okay, the car pulls out up in front and he walks into the house, and you see the outside shot of the house, and I'm sitting there and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, I'm waiting for him to walk in and tell them what happened and hear Annie scream. And it never fucking comes. And you actually hear Annie say, good, they're home. Right. And yeah, and Peter just goes to bed. And I'm like, what the fuck? You just killed your fucking sister. And you're just going up. And, okay, well, I'm just going to grab my pillow and my blanket. And I'm just
0: going to go night-night. And honestly, I don't think Peter slept the whole night. I don't. Yeah, I don't think he did. And to be fair, I'm pretty sure he was in like shock, like severe shock. You know, he just wandered in, laid down and laid there. Never closed his eyes. I, I I believe he just laid there the whole night just thinking about what had happened. Yeah. And then we see the, you know, it's the next this morning and we hear Annie say she's, uh, I think she's going to the craft store and she says she'll be back in about 20 minutes or whatever. And the whole time the camera's just on Peter. We just hear hear the talking and then we hear the sound of the door closing and we hear the, the sound of, you know, the car door open. And then we get the blood-curdling scream a just horrendous horrifying scream that seems to last forever and i mean it's clear why she's screaming obviously we all know what was in the car
1: and then the fucked up thing is they cut to the side of the road and you see charlie's head laying there just completely covered with bugs so just just to hammer home exactly what happened
0: yeah and and i mean that was gruesome the special effects were done very well and um, keep in mind that we still hear Annie screaming during this whole thing. We're looking at Charlie's head. We're hearing Annie screaming. Then we cut back and um, Annie's on the floor in the bedroom crying and screaming. And Steve's there trying to, you know, comfort her the best that he can. Yeah. And I
1: thought, I thought the scene was extremely well done by Tony Collette. I mean, you just, you felt the, the grief, everything that lacked emotion about her eulogy at her, at her, at her, at her mother's funeral did a complete 180 in her in her reaction to the death of her daughter and I mean how could you not be absolutely in hysterics after losing your 13 year old child and finding her body under these circumstances but I thought Coney Collette was absolutely amazing in this scene she just the
0: screaming and the sobbing and just the sorrow was just yeah I mean to me it just cut me to the core Oh, yeah. It was, she did a good job. I mean, I'm not denying her acting. She, she's a great actor. I just wish she wouldn't make some of the faces that she makes. Honestly, some of the scariest things in this movie are the faces that she makes. And not because they're, like, scary, but just because they're like, oh, ugh, I'm going to have nightmares about that face. But we'll get to that later.
1: When you're emoting, when you're having emotions, do you, do you think about, while I'm crying or while I'm doing this, while I'm angry, what does my face look like? No, no. who thinks like that? What does my face look like when I'm sad? You do, uh, let me look in the mirror. Oh, nope, I still look like a fucking prick.
0: Okay, but tell me this. Has there ever been anything in your life where you've seen something horrendous and you just stood there with your mouth hanging open with the stupidest look imaginable on your face and just stared? No, nobody does that. I don't know. I just didn't like it. But that scene hasn't even happened yet. Table scene at Deadly Visitor. But you didn't. But you didn't just sit there like you... You turned your head, you opened your mouth, like, and then the scene cut. It wasn't like an extended scene. If that would have happened, I would have said the same thing. Like, Mark, stop making that stupid face. It's going to stick that way. Then he was silent like my fucking mother. <laughs> so then uh, they bury Charlie, of course. They have a wake at the house. And then when the wake is over, we see Steve looking at Charlie's little sketch pad that she likes to draw or liked to draw in. And there's a photo of the bird's head with a crown on it. This is, uh, I would say, foreshadowing for something that we will see later in the movie. And uh, then Annie is out in the treehouse and she's turned on a space heater and she's just like chilling, laying on the floor in the in the treehouse. And then we go uh, Peter at school with his friends under the bleachers, smoking weed, because that's what good kids do. His friends are kind of oblivious to him because I noticed like he's acting kind of odd and they didn't. But then, you know, I mean, they are smoking weed, but. They seem to be having a pretty coherent conversation so it's like they're coherent enough to talk but not to realize something's wrong with peter right and at this point
1: peter's like struggling to to catch his breath and it's almost very it's very reminiscent of charlie when she is having her reaction to to the
0: nuts which i found quite intriguing and automatically it caught my attention the the comparison and then and then to take it one step further he tells his friends that he feels like his throat is getting bigger So he says the exact same thing Charlie said, which was like, I didn't know what to think of that. Because part of me was wondering was he somehow channeling Charlie? You know, was he feeling what she felt and and saying what she said because he was channeling her? Or was it like sympathy, you know, where he was just kind of reliving that moment and his body just reenacted what happened? Either way, he asks his friend to hold his hand and he just starts crying hysterically. Then he goes home. Uh, We see Annie sitting in the car. And he goes in the house, and she's just kind of sitting there. And then she starts up the car and drives off back again to the support group. She's heading back. But this time, she, I guess, decides she doesn't want to go in. She can't face the people inside. So she turns to leave. And what appears to be a random woman just runs up and, like, waves her hands and stops her. And she's like, hey, I recognize you. You know, you should come in. And he's like, no, you know, I don't want to. Uh, My daughter died. And then this woman... I believe she introduces herself as Joan in this scene. Yeah, okay, because let's say either way, I know her name's Joan. So Joan then tells Annie that her son died and that the support group meetings really helped. Annie ultimately decides she's not going to go, and then Joan writes something on a piece of paper and basically says, you know, if you ever need anything, you know, here. I never did figure it out. I, I... thought it was a phone number, but then... A, yeah, I think she gave her a phone number or address or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I thought it was a phone number, but then later there's a scene where it looks more like it's her address because we see her going to Joan's house with that note. Spoiler alert, later she goes to Joan's house. Uh, so then she goes home and once again tells Steve she went to the movies, which at this point, I, I just thought it was kind of weird that she's so hesitant to tell her husband that she's sad over the loss of her mother and daughter. Right, and I think this is just one of many different
1: indicators just showing that things are not necessarily great between Annie and Steven. Right. Uh, On the surface, they appear to be living, you know, a, a perfect life and they live in a nice house and they seem, they seem happy, but yeah, you can, you start to pick up little clues throughout the movie that, yeah, there's definitely a distance between the two of them and whether that distance occurred before the death of her mother or later, I'm not exactly sure, but yeah, you can see it growing.
0: Right, and then it, it's also, that point is driven home a little bit more when we see them lying in bed and Steve puts his hand on Annie's shoulder and she immediately jumps up out of bed. Like the, the thought of him touching her just like skeeves her out so much, she, she just jumps up and she says she can't sleep. And then he, or she grabs a blanket and he says, you know, I know what you're doing. You grab the blanket, like he's not stupid. She goes out to the treehouse, which my thought there was, if you couldn't sleep in the bed, how the fuck are you going to sleep on the wooden floor of a treehouse?
1: I think at this point, it's a comfort thing. She associates the treehouse with Charlie. And so that's where she goes to grieve and to think about Charlie. Sure, it might be
0: comforting, but it sure as fuck isn't
1: comfortable. Like I said, she finds some kind of some kind of comfort. There's something about the treehouse that lures her, that takes her there. And like I said, I think it's her own sense of comfort. Uh, there could be some other things that we'll get into that later.
0: Right. So then we we see Peter in bed and he's looking at the treehouse and then he hears a noise that indicates that he's not alone in his room and he kind of starts looking around. And I honestly got creeped out because I thought for sure something was going to happen. But then I was kind of disappointed because nothing did. It was creepy, but then it kind of felt like it didn't go anywhere. Right. But I think sometimes
1: those are the best scares is when you're anticipating something happening. And, you know, it it doesn't, it doesn't make you any less scared. It doesn't make your heart rate, you know, rise any less. Right. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, But you, you know what I'm saying, as far as it still gets that visceral reaction, you start you start to, you know, you might start to sweat a little bit or your heartbeat increases or whatever, you're waiting for something to happen. And then they throw you a swerve. And, it doesn't... Well, I mean, a little something happens, but nothing...
0: Yeah, but usually when they do that, there's there's usually a payoff, which, I mean, I guess later we, we do learn that maybe it's possible he wasn't alone in the room, uh, but we'll get into that later because, once again, a lot of things that happen in this movie make more sense when you get to the end of the movie, but we can't discuss them because then we'd be jumping straight to the end of the movie. So we'll discuss them later. We had a scene that... I don't think a lot of people caught what happened in this exact scene, but we see Annie working on one of her miniature houses, and she knocks over a bottle of paint. But upon further inspection, or because I watched the movie three times, she doesn't actually knock the paint over. If you go back and watch this scene, right before the paint falls over, the blue light that we saw earlier in Charlie's room kind of floats down the window behind Annie, and then she reaches and her hand never actually touches the paint. The paint falls over all by itself. So I definitely think something else knocked that paint over. Um, that something else being something that we will find later. Right. But there's, there's a spill of the
1: paint, which is what caused her to find Joan's contact information and to reach out to Joan.
0: Exactly. The, the, the paint was clearly intentional to get her to like, Oh, Hey, I should reach out to Joan and, uh, Annie goes to Joan's house. And this was the part that I that confused me because she's carrying the note and she's looking at it like she's looking at an address. But I guess it's possible maybe she called her and then wrote the address on the same piece of paper that the phone number was on. That would be my guess. I mean, yeah, I mean, it makes sense because Joan did seem like she was expecting her. It wasn't like, oh, hey, I didn't know you were coming when she answers the door. Um, Then Annie notices a kind of, honestly, it's kind of a ugly welcome mat that says Joan on it. And she mentions that it looks a lot like the one that her mom used to make, which, I mean, I don't know why anybody would want that because I thought that thing was ugly as shit, but uh, whatever.
1: Real quick, like, I felt like I feel like this is important to interject here. So when she makes a comment about the mat and the fact that her mother used to embroider ones just like that, Joan is very dismissive.
0: It's simply like a, oh, right, something to that effect, to paraphrasing, and that, that was that. Right, which, I mean... From the get go, from the moment that Joan stopped her in the parking lot, I had like really suspicious vibes. Like she just came off kind of shady the whole time. And so when she was like, oh, that looks like something my mom used to make. I was like, "Eh, I don't I don't really think that's a coincidence. But uh, she's talking to Joan and she tells Joan about an incident where she was sleepwalking and uh, she went into her kid's room and poured paint thinner all over the kids and herself. And was trying to light a match. And um, she woke up trying to light the match. Like, her trying to light the match woke her up. It also woke Peter up. And Peter refused to believe her when she said she wasn't trying to kill them. Which, of course, he refused to believe her. He woke up covered in paint thinner. And you're trying to light a match. Who wouldn't think you were trying to kill him?
1: Right. You're trying to set your kids on fire. I mean, fucking... I mean, let's look at the scene from Step Brothers where they, they're sleepwalking. They freaking make food. They throw... Throw pillows into the freaking oven. I mean, they do all kinds of freaking bizarre shit. They don't try and set people on fire.
0: Right. I mean, I, I had an incident where I was pretty much sleepwalking and I tried to pee on my dad's head. I didn't try to set him on fire. I did, I did try to piss on his head. Luckily, uh, my mom woke me up before it happened because I, I don't want to know what would have happened if I had succeeded. I might not be here to tell the story right now. Well, your dad was a little bit of a badass. So yeah, that probably would not have ended up too well. <laughs> yeah. So then uh, moving along, we see it, We see a scene that I don't know. This scene was weird to me where we see Annie working on a miniature of the scene, the accident. Like, why would you want to recreate that? And um, Steve agrees that it's weird. Right. He comes in and, and he's obviously he's shocked. You could tell by his whole demeanor. And he asks her, how do you
1: think Peter is going to feel about this? And she proceeds to tell him it's not about Peter. And that's when they they start to bicker a little bit and, Another indication that they're just they're not in a good place, which fortunately, I've never been in this situation, but I've been told that, you know, the death of a child can cause a lot of stress and a lot of turmoil on on a couple. Right. And yeah, it's just a beginning to continue that that
0: downward spiral of the relationship between Steve and Annie. Right. And then it's pretty clear here that Steve is is kind of like reaching his limit with her. Uh-huh. Like, like, you know, it's like he's kind of over it and he's done. And then we see them eating dinner and Peter asks his mom how she's doing. And this just sets her off. Like she completely fucking loses her shit. She pretty much just flat out tells him that, you know, it's, it's his fault that Charlie's dead, which Peter rightfully points out that she's the one who made her go to the party. You know, ultimately it's Annie's fault that Charlie's dead. And at this point, The look on her face to me was like, I felt like she wanted to murder Peter right then and there. Like she just, she got this cold, blank, like almost evil stare.
1: Right. And the the interesting thing about this argument is, you know, he's sitting there and he's pushing her to talk and you have something to say. He goes, just fucking say it. And she just explodes on him and tells him not to swear at her that she's his mother Why should I tell you? You're basically going to sit there with that, you know, with that nasty look on your
0: face or whatever, however she she phrased it. So I think she said that smug look on your face. That smug look on your face. That's correct. Yeah. Right. Which he clearly wasn't doing. And he even points that out. And it's like, I don't know. Like, I have an observation for that for
1: later. But this was another scene where I just felt that Tony Collette brought her a game uh, just the pressure cooker that was inside of her from the death of her daughter and the tension with her son and obviously the tension with her husband and everything just came to a full-blown eruption. And not lost on me also was Gabriel Byrne, who again plays the role of Steven in this. And how well he acted this as he sat there and just took it all in. And you could just see like the sadness and the pain and the anguish in his face. And this was just yet another scene where I just, I felt so emotionally attached to the to the characters and it just felt like a legitimate
0: argument that would happen with a family and it didn't feel scripted to me right I mean I felt bad for for Peter and Steven Annie on the other hand I just felt like she was out of control she clearly needed help right she just
1: I mean she had a lot of anger and resentment I mean she just completely goes off and she's like basically the point of the matter is well now your sister's dead I know you miss her And it was an accident, but she says, so you won't take responsibility and she can't forgive or accept it because nobody can admit what they've done. Right. And that I felt that that really stood out too, as far as nobody can admit what they've done, not just Peter. And then, yeah, that's the point where she she just kind of sits down in silence and Peter just looks at her and says, what about you, mom? She didn't want to go to the party. Why was she there? Right. And then at this point, Steven just fucking loses it and just fucking puts a stop to it and finally gets it gets the whole thing to disperse
0: yeah and then everybody clearly calms down because uh, we eventually see annie at the um, art supply store and who happens to be there but oh wow it's joan and of course joan is super happy to see annie she's all excited she got to tell her She went to the seance and she met a medium and the medium was able to conjure up her dead grandson. And Annie just kind of seems like she wants nothing to do with any of this crazy shit. But Joan uh, ultimately convinces Annie to come back to her house so she can show her what she learned. And she proceeds to attempt to contact her grandson using a glass that she sets on the table. And they kind of manipulate it like a Ouija board. Yeah, she tells, she tells Annie to place her
1: hand on the glass. She places her hand on the glass. She says, do not apply pressure.
0: Right, much like you would do on a planchette for a Ouija board. Exactly. Except there's no letters to spell words, and they just use the glass movement to communicate. Because she says, if you're there, move it. I don't remember what she says other than, I remember her saying, move it to the right. And if if you're not, or if the answer is no, move it the other way. I don't remember what the question she asked was.
1: Yeah, I think she asks Louis if he's there, which Louis is her seven-year-old
0: grandson. Right. Did a drowned in the uh, drowning accident with his father. Right, and and you can see that Annie is not having any of this. She's freaked out by this. And then it's made worse when uh, something like blows her hair. There's like a blast of wind that moves her hair or like something, you know, with with its invisible fingers flicks her hair or whatever and uh, she loses her shit. And then this is when uh, Joan pulls out a chalkboard, and she's like, you got to see this. And she puts a piece of chalk on it. And she starts talking to Louis again, asking him to write something on the chalkboard or whatever. And he proceeds to write, uh, I believe it said, I love you, grandma. Yeah, yeah, I love you, grandma.
1: Yeah, and it's written in like childlike handwriting. It's like, love L L U V U, And then it's like, Grandma G R A double M A, so you could tell it was it was insinuated that it was a child that had written it. So,
0: right, not insinuated. I mean, it was obvious, but right. And then at this point, Annie's seen enough. She's ready to go. She's I'm I'm out of here. And uh, Joan gives her a candle and a piece of paper, and uh, she's like, you know, basically, here's the instructions on how to uh, how to uh, do your own seance. I mean, you you can talk to Charlie basically, and there's no way in hell I would have taken that paper there's no way in hell I would have ever read the words on that paper out loud or even just in my own head. Right. Which is what she tells her. She has to do is She has to read the words out loud prior to doing the, uh, the seance or whatever. Right. And then she also says everybody in the family needs to be in the house, including your son. Yes. Which I thought it was kind of odd. She made a point to mention, you know, including your son, like make sure Mm -hmm. that that kid is in the house when you do this. And that circles back around too. And uh, once again, there's no way in hell. I mean, at this point, I do not trust Joan at all. And I don't know why Annie does.
1: Right. And the interesting thing is
0: uh,
1: as she's as Annie's getting ready to leave, Joan calls after she goes, you didn't kill her, Annie. And Annie's obviously stopped dead in her tracks. And she looks back at her and she says, what? And Joan says she isn't
0: gone. Right. So then we see Annie uh, driving home from Joan's house and she hears Charlie's signature sound. And it sounds like it's in the car with her, obviously. But when she looks, clearly there's nobody there. I did find it interesting that this happened right after Joan said she isn't gone. Right. And then she hears the clicking sound, almost as if Charlie was like saying, she's right, I'm not, I'm still here with you. So uh, we see Annie in bed. She wakes up and she sees ants on her pillow. Not the kind that are married to uncles. (laughs) boo boo it's like that stupid commercial i don't even know what they're advertising but they're like we have an ant problem and then there's like a bunch of old ladies i don't know stupid commercial anyway we're not here to advertise other people's shit yeah perfect time to insert an ad (laughs) we need sponsors send us money yeah yeah we're not there yet but we will advertise your shit if you pay us i mean by all means give us your money we'll talk about your shit but uh Annie decides that she's going to do what I guess any normal person would do and try to figure out where these ants are coming from. She notices a trail of them heading out of her room into the hallway. She uh, follows them down the hallway into Peter's room, where she then sees the ants are just crawling all over his face, much the same as they were Charlie's head earlier in the movie. Correct. Um, And then this is the first time we see that face I was talking about when she sees his face covered in ants, she makes that stupid fucking mouth hanging open face that I don't like. They could have cut that shit out and the movie would have been 10 times better. It's one of the reasons why I don't like this movie is that fucking face that she makes right there.
1: Son's face is being infected by fucking ants. What the, f- hell would you react?
0: Okay, so if you walked into your kid's room and there were ants all over her head, would you stand there with your mouth hanging open like a fucking moron? I would
1: be, I would probably take a minute to be shocked.
0: Yeah, you would probably be like, what the fuck? Holy shit, or whatever. But you wouldn't just stand there and stare at her with your mouth hanging open. But if you wouldn't
1: get ahead of yourself and you kind of let the, go in further into the scene, how it all plays out, it makes a little bit more
0: sense, numb nuts. No, you're not going to convince me that this was a good face. This is a horrible face. It's, I hate it. But it explains why she stood there freaking staring and
1: didn't fucking react, is what I'm getting at.
0: You know what? There's only one other incident I can think of where a similar face was made. And I hated that, too. And that was in The Shining when Shelley Duvall makes a similar face when something happens in that movie. And I hated it then, too. They need to stop making this face. Stop making this face. Nobody makes this face. I probably wouldn't like your face either. Uh, My face is definitely not a not a good one, but I don't make stupid faces with my stupid face. It's just a stupid face. Naturally, that's debatable. What do you mean? It's debatable.
1: It's debatable whether you make stupid faces or not.
0: Man, it's not too late. I can still call up Ricky. He's probably lost your number already. Uh, but I still have his, motherfucker.
1: This fucking one-night stand is all it was, player. Mm, well, it,
0: it was a good one. Anyway,
1: Annie's staring at her, her aunt faced kid.
0: Right, and then her aunt faced kid wakes up and says, Mom, and this wakes her up because obviously she's sleepwalking. She says, is Charlie here? Which, okay, you know Charlie's not here, but all right, Joan did tell you she was still here and you took that literally. Right, and, and this is this is what, go ahead.
1: As you say, this is where we start to go into another one of those gut punch scenes.
0: Yes, because Peter asks, why are you scared of me? And she was, well, first she says, what? And then she just kind of stands there for a moment. And then she just says, I never wanted to be your mother. And I was like, "Holy fuck!" She just said that. Yeah, and I, I mean, if I didn't already feel bad enough for Peter, this just made it worse because it's like, why would you even say this to your kid? Right, and you can see that it just it cuts him to the core. Which who who wouldn't it do that to? As he as
1: he basically cries and why?
0: Right, and then she proceeds to tell him that she basically didn't want to have a baby, but her mother pressured her into having a baby. Yeah, she said, "Why
1: did you have me?" She said. Yeah, it wasn't my fault. I tried to stop it. And she said she tried everything possible to have a miscarriage that they suggested. And she said none of it worked. Uh, It's like, okay, you intentionally tried to have a miscarriage. It's just their relationship gets more and more twisted as
0: the deeper we go into this movie. Right. But then Peter starts crying and yelling, you tried to kill me. You tried to kill me. And then Annie says she was trying to save him. Right. She says I'm happy it didn't work. But at this point, we can't help but wonder what does she mean that she was trying to save him? What does that even mean? Then the room just burst into flames. Well, yeah, as you, as they were starting that bannering back and forth, you can actually see that she's standing there. She's absolutely
1: drenched in paint thinner. Right. And uh, you can actually see that originally I thought it was sweat when they were showing his face and his reaction. But then you can see that he's actually wet from the paint thinner, too.
0: And yeah. And then the flames ignite. But then she immediately wakes up and we realize this was all a dream. But was it? I mean, the flame part obviously was a dream, but was the conversation a dream or did that part really happen? I don't know. And that's never answered, but I kind of feel like that may have happened because as the movie goes on, we can see that Peter is clearly broken. Right. I mean, your mother
1: basically hates you. You're responsible for the death of your sister. Yeah. I mean, this kid's carrying a lot of emotional baggage.
0: Right. And then we, and then we get a scene where we see uh, Steve and in the distance... In another room, we can hear Annie speaking words that we don't recognize, but we must only assume she's reading the paper that Joan gave her, which obviously is a horrible idea. And then uh, she comes bursting into the room and she's all excited, telling Stephen that she's a medium and she's able to contact Charlie and she wants to show him. And you know, we can see on his face that he's definitely convinced his wife has totally lost her mind. And I can't remember if
1: this, uh, I've got it in my notes here, but I can't remember if this happened before or after she goes into Peter's room and hugs him, apologizes, and tells him that she has to have him come downstairs immediately. So, yeah, yeah she's grabbed Peter up for this, too.
0: Right. She gets Peter, and, and Peter and Steven eventually agree to play along, and they, they do come down. But they're still not too convinced. Because when she wants them to come over to the table, they don't want to. So she moves the table closer to them and gets them to approach the table. And they do the whole glass thing. And she says, you know, move the glass, move the glass. And the glass moves. So then, of course, Steven looks under the table because he's convinced she must be using trickery, uh, which she isn't. And then she uh, gets the sketch pad out and she asks Charlie to draw something. I think she says, show me what you did before or do what you did before or something like that. Another another thing I'm going to interject real quick is right before that, you see Peter react
1: and he asks, did you, you know, did you feel that? And he said it begins, it, it starts to feel like the air just flexed.
0: Yep. And then she's asking Charlie to draw on the sketch pad, which doesn't happen. And then um, eventually Steve basically says, that's enough. We're done. We're done with this. And uh, they start going back and forth. Steve and Annie start bickering and... Peter's sobbing. Yeah, Peter's kind of losing his mind. He's sobbing and trying to catch his breath and just, yeah, having a meltdown. And then there's a, something shatters. I wasn't quite sure, but it's something in one of the cabinets or the door of the cabinet. But a glass shatters off to the side, which um, inevitably stops the arguing. At this point, we hear Annie start to breathe really strangely. Very creepy breathing, not normal breathing. And then she starts talking like she's Charlie.
1: Well, right right before that, she actually asks Charlie what's wrong. And then a huge flame shoots up out of the candle. And she does this like brief, like guttural
0: growl. Yeah. And then she starts talking in the Charlie voice. And then this freaks Peter out, and he starts begging her to stop. I mean, he's just totally losing his mind. He's just, you know, stop, 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 stop. And then she finally stops because Steve has to throw water on her, and it snaps her back to reality. And she clearly has no idea what just happened. Right, and Peter's over there just losing it, still sobbing. And Yeah, and then uh, Steve he just stands there and stares at her. I mean, he's beyond done with this whole situation. I I'm honestly surprised he hasn't just left at this point. Well, at this point, he's probably like, how do I fucking put this in the divorce papers and have the
1: have them not think that I'm fucking crazy. Nobody's going to fucking believe this shit. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I think the
0: main reason he sticks around is it's way too complicated to get out of this shit. Could be. So then, uh, we see Peter in class and then that blue light once again travels around the room and it makes its way to a cabinet. <laughs> Got to interject here. Got to interject here.
1: So this ties back in with dinner earlier when she's talking to, Annie's talking to Peter and she tells him, well, why would I say anything to you? Because you're just going to sit, sit there and look at me with that stupid sneer on your face. While it's Peter sitting in class, he's, over and he sees his reflection in the glass and he actually has a sneer on his face in his reflection, but on his face, it's not there, but in the reflection, it is right. That's something that is being transmitted. that's being shown as far as what Peter's doing when Peter is not actually doing it.
0: It's a perception, right? Which happens right after what I said, like the blue light travels through the room and then it goes on to that piece of glass which then is why he looks at the glass. He looks over and he sees himself looking back with the smug look on his face, for lack of a better term. Um, So yeah, then I guess you could assume that what the reflection is how everybody else is seeing Peter, or at least how Annie sees Peter. Exactly. I don't think everybody does. I don't think the dad does. I think he still sees him as normal, but she sees that version of Peter. So Peter, uh, oh, he hears the tongue clicking sound and he jumps up. He tells the teacher he needs to use the restroom, but he leaves and calls his dad. Steve calls Annie and says, can you guess who just called me from the school? And she says, Charlie. And it's like, oh, my word. Right. Steven's reaction is what? And Annie immediately is nothing. What happened? Yeah. And once again, I'm surprised that he's still there. She's spiraling so hard and so fast. I mean, it feels like there's nothing he could do about it. I guess he's still being a good husband. He's not just going to run out on his wife when she's clearly you know, losing control. Right. He's at the end of the rope. Like I don't think there's much left before he finally just walks out the door.
1: Yeah, because it says that Peter called him feeling threatened by a vengeful spirit. And he proceeds to tell her he, that he has a son to protect. And they pick her back and forth. Things get a little heated. Not a little heated, a lot of heated. And Stephen ends up hanging up on her. And uh, yeah, she ends up calling him back and gets his voicemail
0: and freaking goes off on him and has a hanging up on him. Right, and then she hears a scratching sound in Charlie's room and she goes to investigate and she sees the sketch pad laying on the bed and there's pictures being drawn in it by an invisible force. Somebody is just drawing in the sketch pad. We would assume it's probably Charlie since it's her sketch pad and she likes to draw in it, or she did anyway. Right. We get Peter in bed and he hears the tongue click. This time he actually does see Charlie standing in the corner of the room and uh, he calls out to her. And then there's a kind of a bizarre scene because she opens her mouth, but her head rolls forward and completely falls off. And then as soon as it hits the floor, it turns into a ball. I wasn't really sure what the significance of the ball was.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure either. Symbolism maybe.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It's never really explained. Then he hears the dog growling and he looks and the dog standing in the doorway of the bedroom. And um, at this point, hands come up from behind him, behind the bed, and grab him and start pulling him towards the head of the bed. And uh, the door slams shut, and we hear the dog yelp. And then, you know, he's struggling against these hands that are pulling at him. Then suddenly, Annie is standing there asking him what's wrong. He says, you were trying to pull my head off. And she says, I just came into the room. Was she in the room already? Or did she come in the room after the door closed? Because if that's the case, how the hell did she get in there? The door was closed. Right. And if she was already in there, what the fuck?
1: Yeah. And he says she would never do that. And
0: Peter's freaking out. And Annie says, don't tell dad because it's not true. She says something's happening and I'm the only one who can stop it. I mean, sure. Why not? We do get to see what the uh, drawings in the sketch pad were. And they were pictures of Peter with X's across his eyes, which... Anytime I've ever seen a cartoon drawing with X's for eyes, to me, that means this person is dead, which he's clearly not, but maybe eventually, but right now, no. And then this is when Annie grabs the uh, sketch pad and takes it downstairs and throws it in the fireplace. And the moment that the uh, sketch pad catches on fire, her arm catches on fire. Uh, Once she realizes this, she yanks the sketch pad out and stomps out the fire. And then the uh, fire on her arm immediately goes away, which, okay. I guess, are, are we to assume she's somehow connected to the sketch pad now? Apparently. I don't know. There was a lot of things that I got upon a second watch and even a third watch. And then there's some things like the head turning into a ball and the arm catching on fire that I never, I feel like they didn't really explain. Maybe we're just supposed to make our own assumptions, but I don't know what to assume there, but it happened. So uh, what do we get? Oh, Annie then goes to Joan's apartment. She's banging on the door but nobody answers the door. We get a shot inside Joan's apartment and uh, we see candles all over the place are burning. We see that symbol from the necklace and the telephone pole is in her house. We see a photo of Peter inside of a triangle. And on the table, we see the little garbage toy doll things that Charlie was making. There's one on the table with the bird's head on it. And then there's what looks like a rabbit's head or some sort of a head. And then there's several little dolls that are all bowing to it. They're all on their knees bowing down to this bird head doll, which is very strange and bizarre, but may or may not come into play later. So we see Peter, he's at the school. And then we see Joan is across the street and she's like yelling out to him And she's yelling a bunch of random shit. And she says, like, I expel you. I expel you. Which is a very odd thing to say to anybody. Unless you're performing an exorcism. She yells something. uh, Something about, I believe it said the paragon.
1: I think is what I, if if I heard it correctly.
0: Yeah, I had a hard time understanding some of what she was saying. And then Annie saw the welcome mat. And then she goes home and opens up the uh, box of mom shit. And she pulls out two welcome mats, one that says Annie and the other that says Charles. And you can see that they're clearly made by the same person. I mean, there's no denying that they're made by the same person. Also, the mat that said Charles on it had that symbol that we've seen multiple times. She also finds a book that has that symbol on it. So obviously, that symbol is a major part of everything that's happening. And then there's a page that's been bookmarked in a book that she finds. She opens it up and there's a picture of a guy thing like a humanoid type guy sitting on a camel i believe he's wearing a crown it appears to be some yeah some kind of
1: deity or something
0: right and then underneath the photo it says this is king Payman. and then there's parts that are like highlighted that essentially says that when successfully invoked Payman will possess the most vulnerable host um and that only when the ritual is complete will Payman be locked into his ordained host once locked in, a new ritual is required to unlock the possession.
1: Right. It says King Payment is a male, thus conventious of a male human body. Covetous. Yeah. Excuse me. I, I was having problems reading my own writing. <laughs> yeah.
0: Anybody who's seen your writing gets that.
1: We're not, ta- we're not here to talk about my writing.
0: <laughs> Obviously, basically, payment needs a male to possess, and this male needs to be vulnerable or beat down and. We may or may not know of somebody who fits that description. Right. And then she turns the page and there's a picture of a person sitting on top of a bunch of treasures and it says riches to the conjurer. I would assume then that basically payment can give you shitloads of money and whatnot if you help him find a host. And then this would also explain why her mother wanted Charlie to be a boy. And I guess because it didn't happen the the payoff seems to be wealth but there was no indication that ellen the the mother slash grandmother was wealthy so i guess because she wasn't able to give payment a proper host she didn't get the promised wealth and riches
1: yeah it was like a pyramid scheme
0: it could be but uh annie finds a photo album and she's kind of flipping through it and she sees photos of joan with her mother dun 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 Exactly. This would indicate that Joan is, in fact, shady as shit, and uh, none of this was coincidence. I'm pretty sure everything that's happened has happened because Joan has played a part in making it happen. You mean Joan was a scriptwriter? Sure. Uh, then we do have a picture of, the, of Ellen being showered with gold coins. But once again, I didn't see anything or you know, hear anything anywhere in this movie to indicate that she had riches of any type. Unless uh, maybe the home they live in was her home and Annie inherited it. But if that's the case, they should have said that, which they never did. So then uh, Annie opens the attic, but I don't remember there being a reason beforehand.
1: No, I think she just, the attic was calling to her. She just, uh, something was drawing her to the attic. I don't
0: think there was any particular noise or anything that pulled
1: her in that direction.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't remember anything, but. I did read that there were a lot of like subtle noises that you uh, easily missed if you weren't paying attention. So maybe there was a noise, but we just didn't pick it up. But either way, she opens the uh, door to the attic and a shitload of flies come buzzing out. And uh, it doesn't take long to figure out why, because she goes up there and finds her mother's headless corpse laying up there in the attic. Let me guess.
1: You made another stupid fucking face, right? I mean, who wouldn't make another stupid fucking face when you find your mother's headless body
0: in there? Go ahead. Say it. I don't remember her making that stupid fucking face in that scene, actually. Maybe she made that face off camera this time.
1: Maybe they cut it on the floor.
0: They left it on the cutting room floor because they're like, oh, well, Damien's
1: not going to like this. If we show another stupid face, we better remove this one. Well, if they did,
0: thank you. Thank you for doing that. Because mm-hmm, it's all about you. It is 100%. Anyway, we go, uh, Peter's at school, and uh, we see the blue light once again. And it goes down the hallway and settles on the door that leads into his classroom. And um, he is in class looking just completely out of it. He does, I don't think he even really knows where he's at. He's just kind of existing at this point. Yeah, he, he ain't doing too hot. And then he starts hearing the uh, tongue click sound multiple times, like surrounding him. Cause he kind of he's looking around trying to figure out where it's coming from. Then his arm shoots up into the air and his hand goes into a very awkward position. Picture Timmy from South Park, his hand. But if you were paying attention a little bit back when she saw the picture of Payman, Payman is holding a staff. And on the top of the staff, there's a hand that is in that same position. So at this point, I mean, we only can assume that Payman is doing this, that he's behind what's happening now.
1: Right, and maybe the arm with the hand is direct representation of the staff, like including the arm being, you know, shot up straight in the air, right. being the staff itself.
0: Because at this point, it does not not appear like he has a question for the teacher or anything like that. Right, but the teacher notices, obviously everybody notices this, and the teacher asks if he's all right, and then we uh, get a shot of his face, and he's kind of has like a snarl, like, I mean, I, I immediately thought of Elvis. <gasps> the uh, lip snarl that Elvis used to do, except a little bit more menacing. And then one of his eyes is kind of puffy and all bloodshot. Needless to say, he doesn't look good at all.
1: Yeah, his face is all kinds of distorted.
0: Right, and then uh, his friend asks what he's doing. What are you doing, man? And he slams his face into the desk really hard, which, ouch. More than once. Yeah, he he lifts his head up and slams it a second time. And then this kind of wakes him up because he screams and falls backwards uh, out of his chair. But I just wanted to say that uh, I was reading that Alex Wolf, the actor who played Peter, said that he was willing to actually slam his face into a real desk and break his nose for this scene. But the director did not agree to this. Good for him. Right. But they had a padded desk. And the actor still like did it with so much intensity that he still hurt himself. The padding wasn't thick enough and he still injured himself. Obviously not as bad, but that's how dedicated to this part he was. You know, kudos to him for being so dedicated to a role. But also that's fucking crazy, dude. You don't have to hurt yourself for a part. That's why it's called acting. You see Annie telling Steve about the uh, body in the attic and he goes up there and I really expected him to find nothing. But his reaction when he comes back down indicates he definitely found something up there. And uh, he asks her why she didn't call the police, which is the uh, smart question. Like, you found a dead body in your attic. Why the fuck didn't you not call the police? And then at this point, she's got the photo album. And she's telling him that Joan knows my mom. And I'm trying to, you know, you have to see this. You have to look at this. And she's trying to explain to him, you know, what's going on. And at this point, I feel like, I get it; he's had enough, but I kind of feel like he starts to be more of an asshole than before because he just flat out refuses to hear what she's got to say. And I get it; she's been talking crazy and doing a bunch of crazy shit. But he literally just found a dead body in the attic, so maybe there might be some truth to what she's saying.
1: Okay, well, but but see, here's here's the thing though: is he's the one that received the email that the the grave had been desecated, desecrated, and whatever? His wife is acting all kinds of wacky and whatnot. And then all of a sudden she points out that you know the body is in the attic and he goes up there and finds his mother his, his mother-in-law, her decapitated corpse in the attic. So what further proof would you have to indicate that he believes that she's so fucking cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs that she dug up her mother and drug her body and at some point between point A and point B decapitates her and puts the body in the attic. So I feel like in hindsight, Stephen had every reason to suspect
0: that Annie played a major part in this. I mean, I get it, but I still feel like at this point he was being more asshole than before. But I get that he's reached his point. I mean, he's beyond, oh, he's, he's beyond his fucking point. He's fucking boiling over. He's had it. Right. And then she tells him that they need to burn the sketch pad. And uh, she, he needs to do it because she can't do it. And at this point, I just want to point out something that I noticed <laughs> She was wearing some fucking ugly shoes in this scene. <laughs> I, we get like a wide shot of them and I just saw her feet. For some reason, I just happened to glance at her at her feet. and I'm like, what the fuck is she wearing on her feet? That's the ugliest fucking boot shoe things I've ever seen. This is Midwest movie maniacs, not Project Runway. Look, man, I'm just saying, what the fuck? Who wears that shit, man? That looks like some shit like, I don't know, like some shit from way back, like uh, Handmaid's Tale. Maybe they would be wearing that shit. Not somebody in the present day. This is a motherfucker with three fucking pairs of Crocs in his closet. Bitch, I don't own no Crocs. That ugly ass shit. I got one pair of shoes. I'm poor as shit. Spoiler alert. Once again, this podcast does not pay us anything. We ain't making money on this shit. I can't afford three pairs of Crocs. What the fuck? Be watching for our GoFundMe so we can get Damien some fucking new shoes. Damn right. Actually, I think I do own another pair of shoes. They're somewhere in a closet. But either way. She finally convinces him to throw the note to sketch pad in the uh, fire. And as he's walking over there, doo, 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 I'm going to do what you ask. He stops and turns around. And uh, he basically says, That's it. I'm not doing this anymore. You're sick. I'm going to call the police. Then she grabs the sketch pad. She whips it into the fire, which, come on, now, last time you did this, you caught on fire. What the fuck are you thinking, girl? And it happens, except it's not her that catches on fire but it's Steven. That's
1: right. Gabriel Byrne burns. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> and guess what? That fucking face is back. She stands there staring at him burning and she's making that same fucking face and God damn it, stop making that face. Oh, I feel Steve. I don't feel the burning part of Steve, but I feel the anger that Steve felt. Because if she ever made that face in front of him, I get why he was being an asshole to her. Oh my God, I get it.
1: I mean, wouldn't you make that face if your husband was on fire?
0: No, I would not make that fucking face. Never in my life have I ever made that face or would I ever make that face? No, I could see the most horrendous, horrible, fucked up thing in my life. And I would not stand there with my mouth hanging open like a fucking moron making that fucking face. It's never going to happen. All right. Yes, and while she's making that fucking face, the blue light passes over her body, and then guess what she does? She's like, "Oh, there's a sale at Kmart." No, she makes a new stupid face. Oh, a new one. This one is like the face somebody makes right before they pass out. It's not as bad as the O face, but it's oh god, stop with the faces, lady. Luckily, we don't get a long shot of this face. It's kind of like er, dirt, and then we get a cut. We cut to uh, Peter. Waking up, looking out the window, and the uh, treehouse is glowing red again. And then we get a a wide-angle shot of Steven's room, and people who were paying attention, which I've heard some people weren't, apparently, uh, noticed Annie is up in the fucking corner of the room. Just Spider-Man style, up in the corner, up by the ceiling, just hanging out.
1: You're talking about when he's he's still in the bedroom? Uh, Yeah. I did not see her up in the corner, but I did see
0: her like fly by in some like strange swimming motion through the air nope that comes but that before that he's he's lying in bed we get a shot like a wide shot i think the camera's kind of looking up like almost up from the floor at him and she's up behind him in the corner then he sits up in the bed and he turns over his right shoulder and looks the direction where she was and at this point that's when you see her doing that weird like air swim out the door so it's like he felt a presence and he turns to look. But as he's turning, she does that weird. I didn't really like that part because it kind of looked like somebody was like being suspended on a string and they were just flailing their arms as they like were pulled out of the room. That part was kind of weird. I, I think I would have rather had him had her like crawl across the wall and out the door. I think that would have been a better shot. But she was there. If you go back and watch it, you see her up in the corner of the room which then explains why she's crawling or flying or swimming out the door because she's getting the fuck out of there. And then he gets up and he's like calling for his parents. And we hear a sound that to me sounded like a piano crashing to the ground, which we get a confirmation that it was in fact the piano being knocked over because we get a shot of him coming down into the main room and we see the piano is smashed on the ground. I noticed like the piano wires were kind of like all askew. It, it almost looked like somebody was like ripping piano wires out of the piano because I didn't think if you just knock a piano over, I didn't think the wires would just shoot out like that. But I don't know. Maybe they do. I don't I've never knocked a piano over. But then at this point, he finds Steven's body. And as he's looking at Steven's body, we get another shot of Annie. Real quick, like I got to interject, I have to, I absolutely positively have to know what kind of fucking air fresheners they're
1: using in that house, (laughs) because he gets up and walks through the whole house and walks downstairs and does not at any point appear to smell his father's burnt flesh, then finds his body laying in front of the
0: fireplace. Right. Yeah. You didn't smell that shit? That shit stinks. Maybe he had COVID and he lost his sense of smell. Hmm. Hmm, maybe that's, maybe that's where COVID started in this fucking movie. So COVID is hereditary. Yes, there you go. But anyway, as he's looking at his father's body, uh, we get a shot. Dad's burnt, burnt like a weenie on a grill. Burnt up, crispy body. We see Annie once again up in the corner, clinging to the wall like Spider-Man. And um, Peter, I believe he heard a noise that prompted him to turn around. And when he turns around... There's a creepy, naked dude standing in the doorway, smiling at him. Dead old man dick. (laughs) Eagle-eyed viewers would recognize that this was actually the same guy that was smiling at Charlie in the beginning at the funeral. This was the same guy. He's back now, smiling at Peter, except this time around, he's naked. Because, I mean, obviously, he couldn't be naked at the funeral, but now that he's in Peter's house, he's like, yep, here's my dick. Look at it. Some people feel comfortable walking around naked in their own home. Some people
1: apparently feel comfortable walking around making it in somebody else's home.
0: Exactly. And then uh, at this point, Peter does look up to the corner where Annie was. And we get the one and only time that I was scared in this movie. Uh, That is because she suddenly appears just running at him full speed from the darkness. And I did not expect this because up to this point, they had not used a jump scare. And so it got me, but I mean, it was a jump scare, which is like the cheapest scare possible, but it worked because I definitely was like, holy shit. And even on the second time I watched it, because I watched it once like a couple months back and I had forgotten about that. So when I watched it a second time for this podcast, it got me again because I was like, holy shit, I forgot that was going to happen. So I'll give them props to that because I really thought at that point in time, there was a really good possibility that I was going to have hooter squirts. And if you've listened to previous episodes, you'll know what hooter squirts are. We're not going to explain it, but from here on out, it's going to be called hooter squirts. I'm coining the phrase hooter squirts right now. And we we won't go into details, but it's if you shit your pants. It's the hooter squirts. And that almost made me shit my pants. And so uh, Peter does the thing that people in horror movies always do. And he runs upstairs because that's obviously the best place to go when you're being chased by somebody. Actually, he runs all the way upstairs into the attic and he pulls the ladder up behind him. And latches the door. Right. And then you hear a sound like uh, somebody's just banging, 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 banging on the door. Um, which, I mean, we know she can climb on walls like Spider-Man. So I figured, you know, she's just pounding on the door. But then uh, we get a cut to her banging on the door, but it's not her fist, it's her fucking head. She's just pounding her head on that door.
1: This scene is absolutely fucking badass as she's hanging, hanging from the ceiling and banging her head on the door. Um, one thing I did find interesting is he's saying, Mommy, I'm sorry. Now I don't know if you caught this or not, but this is like not the first time in this movie that he's called her Mommy. Which I find really interesting because Peter's basically like a seventeen-year-old, possibly eighteen-year-old male, and to be calling his mother "mommy," I found it quite strange. Right, but uh, it makes a little bit more sense later.
0: Right, and and also, I mean, he's beyond broken at this point. Right, he's so beat down, and and so I mean, maybe he kind of you know you kind of feel like he reverted back to his childhood a little bit and was just calling for the one person that he thought could protect him, even though she's the one that was trying to hurt him.
1: Right. And she's fucking hanging on the ceiling, fucking banging her head on the fucking wall, like a fucking woodpecker. And, uh, maybe he was even trying to appeal to her. Like maybe if there's any part of my mother still inside, if I call her mommy, maybe
0: it'll snap her out of it. And this fucking madness will go away. Right. Which the, the banging does stop. And then Peter looks around the room and he sees that there's just shitloads loads of candles burning all over the place. And then, uh, He notices like dust or powder of some sort all over the floor. And then in the middle of it, there's a silhouette, which obviously would have been his grandmother's headless body, which is not there anymore. But then right in the middle of the silhouette of the body is a photo of him. And the eyes have been like scraped out or poked out with something, which I thought was kind of fucked up. Yeah, just a little. And I thought that they were, you know, basically telling us that somebody was going to poke his eyes out which, spoiler alert, doesn't happen. I mean, I'm glad it didn't happen for him, but I, I kind of feel like what does happen, I think I maybe would have rather just had my eyes poked out. But we'll get there. So then uh, at this point, we hear kind of a, like a... Eh, 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 like something... No, not your parents' bed springs. No, 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 not a squeaky bed spring. But like, I, what would I would describe as kind of like something is being sawed. And then he obviously hears it as well because he looks up towards the source of the sound and once again, Annie is up in the corner uh, where the ceiling meets the wall. And we see now that she actually does have a piece of piano wire. And she's just ripping it back and forth across her throat and sawing deeper and deeper into her own throat with this piano wire. Blood is just spurting everywhere. And I did find this kind of creepy. Not not the bloody gory shit. That doesn't bother me. But the fact that while she was doing this, she was just staring right at Peter. And like, I don't know, that just fucked me up because I imagined being in his shoes and seeing your mother doing this and the whole time she's just making straight eye contact with you while she's doing this. Yeah, that's
1: gonna stick in your psyche for a long fucking time if you survive this experience.
0: Right, and then she starts to like go faster. E-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e. Like she starting like really, really going to town. She's clearly trying to, to get her head off. And um, Peter then realizes that he's not alone because he sees naked old people standing on the other side of the room, smiling at him.
1: I've seen naked dead people.
0: <laughs> just a side note to go back to earlier when Peter heard a noise in his room and nothing was there. This right here is what makes me think maybe something was there. Because I think that maybe these people had been in the house already, but we just hadn't seen them. So the sound that he heard may have been somebody scurrying about in the house. Because obviously the body got put in the house and different things were happening. And I don't think Joan was doing it all herself. I think these other people were helping. And then, of course, Peter does the only smart thing that you can do in this scenario, he launches himself out the window. Which I believe kills him. I I, I think he dies when he hits the ground. Yeah, I didn't really think of that. Just based on how high it is, and just you know, the way he goes out the window. And as the camera goes out the window and it's moving down towards the ground, we can hear the sawing get faster, 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 faster. Then it stops and you hear. A thud followed by a rolling sound, which obviously we can only assume means Annie successfully sawed her head off and we hear it across the floor. And then we see Peter and we see a shadow of a headless corpse float across his body. And um, while this is happening, there's a small blue, almost looks like a glowing dust particle that floats down and goes into his back. And then... He raises his head and watches Annie's now headless corpse float up into the treehouse. And he stands up and then there it is, the tongue click. But this time he's not hearing it, he's doing it. And there's a lot of speculation on what this means. Some people think that this means that he's possessed by Charlie. Some people think that this means that he's possessed by something else, which we'll get to in a minute. I think it's both actually, which we'll also get to that in a minute. He starts walking towards the uh, treehouse, and then we see even more random naked people. Just creepy naked people. Dead dicks everywhere. Dead dicks and dead titties now, too. Yeah. Good spot for a Viagra ad. Yeah, I, I guess. I, I mean, if they're all old people, they're probably, they probably are dead dicks, but the people aren't dead. They're all alive. And I don't think they're all old. At least not some that we're going to see soon. I mean, maybe the ones outside might have all been old. But once he gets inside well, the treehouse. Hold up.
1: If these people aren't dead, they're fucking pale as shit. I mean, they look like they've been bathing in a jar of mayonnaise. They didn't need to go out and get some sun or, you know, go out in the daylight a little bit or whatever. Fucking vampire looking motherfuckers. Practically glow in the goddamn dark.
0: I don't think they're dead because they're people that we've seen. Well, I mean, we haven't seen all of them, but like the guy that was in the hall or in the uh, funeral home that appears in the doorway that Peter sees, he was definitely not dead because we saw him earlier at the funeral unless we think he was a ghost then, but I, th- I believe they were alive. And then I didn't really investigate this, but I read online that people recognized some of the people from the uh, grief counseling meeting were there. Uh, one of Peter's friends from school was there. So yeah, there were definitely people who were shown as being alive earlier in the movie. So I, I think these people were all alive. I think that these are part of like the cult that are, you know, worshiping payment. So yeah, I don't think they're dead. Maybe they just don't get a lot of sun. Maybe they spend all their time inside worshiping. Who knows? Peter eventually makes his way into the treehouse and he sees more naked people. These ones are all down on their knees praying in the same position that the creepy little dolls were in Joan's apartment. He turns around to see what they're praying to and there's a large wooden figure reminiscent of the ones that artists use when they're trying to pose people in certain positions but this is like a life-size version except it has Charlie's head on it, and she's wearing a crown, which goes back to the photo of the bird's head with a crown on it. And it's holding a staff, and the staff has that same hand that he made in class on top of it. So this is obviously some sort of payment symbolism. And that symbol that we've seen throughout the movie is painted on the chest of this figure. The camera pans down, we see both of his parents both of them are headless, which did we see the dad was headless earlier? Or is this the first time we find out the dad's head? I think this is the first time we
1: find out the dad's headless. I think he still had his head when he was laying on, in the living room.
0: Yeah, I don't think it actually showed. I don't think it got, I think it was just going up the body, but I don't think it got to his head. Because yeah. I don't remember seeing his head, but I also don't remember seeing his head you know, being gone. So I don't think we ever got that high. But he definitely doesn't have a head now. And they're both at the front kneeling and praying towards this charlie doll thing and then i thought it was kind of strange that stephen's body had like a robe draped over it because everybody else was naked except for one other person which i believe is joan and then stephen and annie both have these like ceremonial robe looking things on but i guess maybe that's part of the ceremony maybe that was necessary And then Peter sees a photo of his grandmother and underneath the photo, it says Queen Lee. So she was the queen of this cult, I guess, I don't know. She was obviously somebody of high esteem in this cult. And then at this point, the person who I believe was Joan. Yeah, it was definitely Joan. Okay, and she takes the crown off of Charlie's head and places it on Peter's head. And I don't know, for some reason at this point, I immediately thought Jughead, Cause the crown was kind of goopy looking and it kind of looked like they had that Jughead wears in the Archie comics, the, the, you know, the crown thing that Jughead wears. So maybe they bought it at the craft store. <laughs> maybe, but uh, either way she puts it on his head and then she says, Charlie, you are payment, which this would indicate then that the tongue click does mean that he's Charlie, but also that he's payment, which I believe would indicate that Charlie the whole time was payment, right? Um, and she tells them that payment is one of the eight kings of hell, and um, obviously, he's now the king of hell. I guess he's gonna rule hell and these people, which maybe these people are dead and they're in hell. I don't know. Yeah, one of the things the thing that I found interesting
1: was she said, uh, we have looked to the northwest and called you in, and we've corrected your first female body. And give you now this healthy male host so apparently this was the plan from the get-go was to get payment inside of peter's body
0: right and then she tells them that they will worship him forever and everybody who has a head anyway uh begins chanting and then we do see that stephen and annie's bodies have both turned around so they're now facing towards peter charlie payment and the camera just pulls back as they all chant, hail, payment, hail, payment, and then fade to black and credits roll. But I, I kind of feel like Charlie was payment. I think way back when uh, grandma sunk her claws into her, I think she put payment inside of Charlie all the way back, which is why Charlie never cried or you know any of that shit.
1: Right. And see, here's the thing that I found interesting going back on IMDb, not to cut you off, but
0: um, you go back to the support
1: meeting when Annie recounts her brother's suicide when he was 16. And he had stated that the suicide note blamed uh, their mother and said that she was trying to put people inside of him. Right. You know, Annie basically chalked that up to his schizophrenia. But it could be that at that point, Ellen was originally trying to conjure payment and put him in her son.
0: Yeah, that's definitely what I thought. I, I felt like that was what she was trying to do. And then when that didn't work, then, you know, Annie had Peter. But at that point, they were not talking. So she couldn't get her hands on Peter. So she got payment inside of Charlie as a temporary host. Right. Yeah. So
1: she, that's one of the, the why she had put so much pressure on uh, Ellen to have children. And that was why Charlie had stated early on in the film that her grandma wished that she was a boy.
0: Right, because if Charlie had been a boy, this would have all been avoided because Payman would have been inside Charlie and he would have been ruling hell. And maybe the rest of the family would have survived. Maybe Payman would have just went on and did his own thing and left them all alone. Or maybe he would have killed them all, I don't know. But obviously he was not happy being inside a girl. He wanted a male host. And eventually he got that male host in the form of Peter. Yeah. I mean, overall, the story, I don't mind the story. I just felt like there was a lot of things that weren't well explained. And the, like I said, a lot of things I didn't realize or recognize until I went back to watch it the second time. And then even on the third watch, I saw some new things. And I just feel like you shouldn't have to watch a movie multiple times to pick up on shit. Like things need to be a little bit more clear the first time around. Because the very first time I watched it, when it ended, I absolutely hated it. I, I, I just sat here and said, what the fuck did I even watch? And the second time I got, I had a better understanding, and it also helps that I read some different interviews with Ari Aster, the director, right. where he kind of explained things, which is great. It helped me understand the movie, but I shouldn't have to have the director explaining shit to me. You know, I mean, what if that interview didn't exist? Then there would there'd be unanswered questions that I'd be like, I don't, I don't know what the fuck that meant. I don't know what that means. I don't know what's going on here. So overall, the performances were good. The cinematography was good. The scenery was good. The the special effects, the times that they did have, you know, the minimal gore and special effects were all done well. Everything about the movie was good, except for the, like, the execution of the story, I just felt is where it fell off. So it's like, I enjoyed it more the second time, but I still didn't fall in love with the movie. I still overall didn't, I don't know, I'm torn. <laughs> I don't want to say I didn't like the movie because there were definitely a lot of things I did like, but I didn't like, the things that i the, the things that i didn't like it, it kind of evens out which which i'll bring it right here to the uh corn cob rating system i put this right smack dab in the middle and gave this 5 out of 10 i just felt like the the things i liked and the things i didn't like kind of fell evenly on both sides so it brought me right to the middle so i gave it a 5 out of 10 cuz i felt like in my mind that's the appropriate rating for the way i felt about this movie
1: i'm going to have to go a uh, completely opposite direction i'm going to have to give this honestly i'm going to give it a 9 just because I felt it was so well acted, uh, the execution on a lot of the special effects were absolutely fantastic. Just overall, the story, There were, a lot of times there's movies that you can definitely predict what's happening and I felt it was extremely unpredictable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought Tony Collette was absolutely phenomenal. The fact that she did not receive an Academy, was not even nominated for an Academy Award for this movie was shocking to me. Um, I felt Gabriel Byrne, even though he was more of an, a supporting role, I thought his acting was good. I felt even, uh, what was his name, Peter, Peter Wolf? Alex. Alex Wolf, excuse me. <laughs> Peter Wolf is something entirely different. Um, he, he was great, too. So, yeah, I I felt this movie was splendid and, you know, joyful, you know, joy, not joyful. Oh, my God, that's some <laughs> twisted
0: shit. It was a... <laughs>
1: It it was it was for me it was a joy to watch. I just really really liked how everything was done, and I have very very minute complaints that I'm not even going to get into because they're really they're insignificant. So yeah, I thought it was I thought it was well done, and my hats off to Ari Aster as this was, from what I understand, his feature debut, and I felt he knocks it out of the park on his first feature film.
0: Yeah, it wasn't bad for a first movie. I mean, it 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 has, it definitely has its good parts. I mean. I, like I said, I don't totally hate the movie. I give it credit where credit is due. There was definitely a lot of good things about the movie. There's just a lot I, that I just didn't, it just didn't fall into place for me. But as, as far as why nobody received any kind of nod from the Academy, it's because the Academy are a bunch of assholes who do not like horror movies and refuse to give them the proper credit. There's only a very, very few rare occasions where any kind of horror movie has gotten recognition by the Academy. For some reason, it's just like they feel the horror movies aren't worthy. They're not good enough. I don't know. But fuck the Academy. Seriously, get over yourselves and give proper credit to these people that give their all to perform in these movies. And in, in, I mean, look at the scene where Annie finds the dead body of Charlie. Look at the reaction. Look at the scene where she's on the floor, you know, losing her shit. I mean, how do you not look at that and go, wow, that's some seriously good acting? overlook the fact that it's a horror movie and just look at it for what it is you know it's like this woman went through hell to do this movie i mean you know imagine the emotional toll it had to have on tony collette to have to act so distraught and so torn down and broken and then later so you know crazy and then eventually almost evil and you can't even recognize that you know you go oh well it's a horror movie so it's not worthy of our praise so fuck you guys for that right yeah if you didn't like the story okay
1: You know, if you thought it was a little, you know, the beheading scenes were graphic and, you know, there were some twisted things that didn't necessarily meet with your ideology of a a film and what a film should be, that's fine. But the fact that she was completely overlooked for any kind of nomination for this movie, you're right, is absolutely ridiculous and short-sighted by the
0: Academy. And yeah, shame on them. No, not shame on them. Fuck them. Fuck them. Right. Fuck the Academy. But at the same time, five out of (laughs) ten. (laughs) <laughs> like I said, I gotta give it a nine out of ten, but I didn't sorry, were you gonna go somewhere? No, no, I'm just I was just pointing out the irony that I'm that I'm going to bat for the this movie, but then I'm giving it a five out of ten. Well, you're not necessarily going to bat for the movie. You're going to bat for the actress in the movie
1: and the role that she portrayed, even though you didn't right. like her stupid fucking faces.
0: Oh oh fuck the stupid fucking face. And you know what? I take back what I said. Fuck that. She doesn't deserve to get an award because of that fucking face. Oh Jesus. Okay, anyway. Fuck. So one thing Can I strip, got take that fucking Oscar away from one me. Fuck it. All right. All right. All right. One thing I got to
1: throw in here before we take this home is I found a very interesting tidbit on IMDB uh, going all the way back to the first decapitation scene with Charlie. Mm-hmm. This is fucking nuts. So the first decapitation scene is very similar to a real life event that happened in Marietta, Georgia in 2004. A young man and his friend drove home, very drunk after a party. And the passenger felt he was going to be sick and stuck his head out the window in case he needed to throw up. While the driver accidentally swerved near a pole, the pole's guy wire decapitated the passenger. The drunk driver was so drunk, he did not realize his friend was decapitated and continued to drive home, park in his parents' driveway with his decapitated friend in the car, and go inside to sleep for the night. So, that fucking shit basically fucking really happened. To the point where the kid went, the dude went upstairs and went to bed and left the body in the car. I mean, it's like, who fucking does that? Guess what? Somebody fucking did that.
0: That's what kills me. Yep. I could not believe when I read that. I'm like, wow, that is crazy. Right. And then it all then it makes you wonder when when they were writing this movie, had they heard that story? They had to have. Yeah, I mean it, it almost feels too coincidental that something almost identical happened in real life. You know, so it's like maybe they heard that story. And then when they were writing this movie, they were like, oh, remember that one fucked up story we heard? Let's incorporate that into this movie and have that be how Charlie dies. So, yeah, but as far as the real story goes, that's fucked up. I mean, as you know, I don't drink and things like that just add to me going, eh, that's why I don't drink. That's never going to happen to me. If uh, I'm in the car with my friend and their head gets cut off, I'm going to know. I don't wanna know, but I'm gonna know right away. But on a side note, okay, I've got headphones on, obviously, while we're doing this, but for the last five minutes or so, I've been hearing what I can only describe as a kind of a banging noise coming from down the hallway. And I'm alone in the house. So I'm not gonna lie, I'm a little freaked out. It's possible that it might be one of my cats because one of my cats is laying here on the floor and the other one is nowhere to be found. So maybe she's just back there getting into trouble, which I am hoping is the case. Otherwise, I'm afraid I'm going to go down the hallway here in a minute and I'm going to see a creepy naked person. Or Tony Collette hanging from your ceiling. Oh, no. Fuck that. Don't (laughs) don't put that thought in my head (laughs) because I'm alone here all the way up until I go to bed. And I don't want to be like in bed and then start thinking about that shit. Oh, what
1: a feeling when Tony Collette's on your ceiling.
0: No. No, 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 no. All I'm saying is when you're talking about this kind of shit and then you're talking about payment, which, by the way, is a real thing. You can look him up. He's real. So continually saying payment, 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 payment. I'm like, did I accidentally call him? Is it like a Candyman scenario? I don't know. Just slightly freaked out. Stop it. Don't do that shit. It wasn't me. Fuck you. It was you. I know it was you. You're not going to get me with this shit. Shut up! I'm not gonna have nightmares. If I do, it's gonna be that fucking face. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. My luck, I'm gonna have a nightmare about her hanging on the ceiling, making that fucking face. It'd be a wet dream. Ah, uh, fuck me. I, I, I gotta watch something. I gotta watch something to get my mind off of this shit so I can relax. All right. At this point, uh, we've been doing this for a long time. This episode's also gonna be long. So for those of you who have made it this far congratulations on surviving because there's no amount of editing that's going to get this down to an hour. This one's going to be a long one, but this movie is long, so it was kind of unavoidable. But at this point, we're going to wrap this shit up so I can go make me some dinner. I gotta go feed my kids. That's right. You go feed your kids and yourself, and I'm going to get a hold of Ricky and see if he wants to come in. Oh, no, wait, never mind. You're not supposed to know. I'm going to (laughs) go. I'm just going to go make dinner. That's all gonna go make dinner so uh if you want to find us we are on the social medias twitter and instagram both at maniacs pod facebook at midwest movie maniacs slasher at midwest movie maniacs and you can also email us at midwest movie maniacs at gmail.com we're out there get a hold of us Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow whatever your podcast platform has. Follow, like, subscribe so that you can see when we have new episodes coming. And also, please rate and review the podcast. The more positive reviews we get, the higher up we move in the rankings and the more likely other people will discover us. So please help us out by doing that. We would really appreciate it. So with that being said, this is the end of the episode. Until next time. Goodbye, everybody. Say goodbye, cockbite. Goodbye, cockbite. You motherfucker.